Morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. Greetings. I'm Hugh Hewitt in the ReliefFactor.com studio. Last time from the West Coast for a while, back inside the Beltway. And that music means it is time for the Hillsdale Dialogue. The last radio hour of each week on the Hugh Hewitt Show is devoted to important major issues, some of them very old. Next week, we begin Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, But this week, we're talking for the third week in a row about Brexit. This time with President Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. There are two L's in that, Steelers fans. Hillsdale.edu. You get all of their online courses. You can sign up for the free and primus newsletter. You can contribute to the college and join the effort to renew American education at all levels by supporting Hillsdale College. And if you love these conversations, you can binge listen to all of them dating back to 2013 at com. Dr. Larion, good morning. Are you awake and ready to go to work? I'm ready to go to work, yeah. All right. Now, I'm going to throw you a curveball at the start because while we're going to talk about Brexit, there was a debate last night, a presidential debate last night, and Joe Biden said this. Play the radio. Make sure the television, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night, the, the, the phone. Just to make sure you heard it. Play the radio. Make sure the television, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night, the, the, the phone. What do you think that does to his campaign, Dr. Arn? Well, first of all, he's going after the millennials because he shows he knows all <laughs> about all kinds of technology. <laughs> they are hip. The hipsters are into that. So maybe this, this is a hipster play. Play the radio. Yeah. Make sure the television, the, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The, the, the phone. You know, I don't think that's it, Dr. Arn. <laughs> <laughs> you think uh, so? He was confused there, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that's not too good. And it's uh, unfortunately quotable. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, listen, people will now know this because I played play the radio. Make sure the television. Excuse me. Make sure you have the record player on at night. <laughs> the, the phone. I played it thirty-six times. The perfect number. I'll stop now. But I played it thirty-six times this morning. That's going to stick. Yeah, it is. And you know what's interesting? If he's if he if he's witty, he should. I wish I I, I don't wish I were Joe Biden's speechwriter, but because <laughs> I haven't behaved that badly in my life. <laughs> but but uh, if I were, I would say I was just thinking of the major revival of popularity of vinyl records. <laughs> that was that is the only way out, but it won't fly because he'll get records and vinyl juxtaposed. My my quick take on it is when a gaff diverts attention from you and just it's just a gaff, then it's just a gaff and it fades. When it underscores the central defect in your campaign, in this case a concern about age, it really hurts and brands you. Well, well, you remember George Bush uh, going to the market, the yes. store, and they they scanned his food to see how much it cost. And you know, people had grandchildren who'd seen that, but he'd never he'd never seen it. Yeah, and and that did a terrible thing to him, right? That that's did... right because aloofness and out of touch, and you know, sort of from a gentry class, that was the campaign against him, right? And so I thought he thought, I'll go in the market. And I'll, you know, and it, it was it was a bad ploy because, you know, presidents never have any money. Yeah. They, don't, they, they don't carry money. <laughs> what would they do with it? So they so, you know, somebody had to give him some money. 
<laughs> that was a mess. You're, you're, but, but it reinforces when you make a gaffe that underscores the central defect in your campaign. You mentioned aloofness, patrician mm-hmm. Yankee stuff with George H.W. Bush. It sticks. It That's just right. sticks. All right, now let's get to Brexit. Uh, first of all, the reason we're coming back is because of an email Dr. Arn received. I don't know if you want to quote the uh, very distinguished historian who sent it to you, but tell people what it said. Well, this will give people an insight in how we program the Hillsdale Dialogues. If somebody we respect praises us, we just, <laughs> <laughs> we just keep doing what he said. <laughs> uh, Andrew Roberts, great man and friend of mine and yours, you been on your show many times. Distinguished he, historian. He he wrote this uh, email to us and said how great we were because yeah. we because we got it all exactly right. <laughs> and, and if I were Joe Biden, I would have the email here ready to read right yeah. now, but I don't. But that which gets rewarded gets repeated, of course. And what he what he made, I don't have the email either. But the point that he made was that uh, Doctor Arn, not yours truly, but Doctor Arn genuinely understands the issues at stake in Brexit and that many Americans don't and that it's so important, it's important for Americans to understand it. Uh, And I think he's right, Dr. Ron. I've said you ought to be on every show across the United States explaining this. Let me very quickly run down the headlines for us to take off on. In the Times of London, DUP, that is the coalition partner, the Democratic Union Party of Northern Ireland, DUP opens door to new Brexit deal for Boris Johnson. In the Financial Times, they are also speculating that perhaps the uh, the Brexit border will begin at the Irish Sea, not at the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. In um, uh, the Guardian, uh, repeats the very same thing, saying that the DUP has softened its position. And in the Telegram, Boris Johnson's to hold talks with Jean Claude Juncker in Luxembourg. Uh, And that is, again, there may be a deal out there that gets rid of the backstop. For people to understand this, they've got to understand the United Kingdom is four kingdoms. And developments drove the debate this week from the far north kingdom, Scotland, where the highest court in the land ruled without effect, that the prorogation was illegal. And the southernmost uh, kingdom, Northern Ireland is the southernmost kingdom, apparently changed their negotiating position. What do you make of all of this? Well, um, talk about the backstock in a minute. First, these uh, uh, the ruling of the High Court of Scotland is an interesting thing, because I think what's underlying all of this is the fundamental political question, who gets to rule? Who's in charge? Who has authority? In America, that is the constitutional majority, that is say, the majority of the citizens as they are organized under the Constitution. Lincoln said famously, a constitutional majority changing freely with changes in circumstances in time is the only true sovereign of a free people. So so um, here's an interesting thing about Britain. See, Britain doesn't have the kind of it has a constitution, but not the kind of constitution we have. They don't have a document of 4,000 words agreed and ratified by a convention and then by the people that is authoritative. Uh, what they have is a bunch of big things that were done, mostly in the course of disputes between the Crown and Parliament, uh, that set up the sort of main outlines of British politics. But there's no document for a court to refer to and say, this law passed by the people, because see, the great features of the British Constitution, by the way, are acts of Parliament, not the people. Uh, there's no document like that that I can appeal to and say the Parliament 
did wrong here, right? And and so that's just the way it works. And you know, Churchill says once that that's uh, the the disad the ad- advantage of the British Constitution is age, custom, and flexibility. <laughs> yeah. And the and the disadvantage is flexibility. Yeah. And and the advantage of the American Constitution is coherence and and uh, clarity and strictness. And those are the disadvantages, too. So, anyway, uh, now the issue about prorogium is Boris Johnson wants to do one or both of two things right away. He wants to leave Brexit on October 31 with or without a deal, or else, and he wants an election. Now, an election is going to the people, and it's a, it's a custom. It's a hallowed thing. See, in America... Our, election, our elections are fixed in time. Uh, two years, every two years for the House, every uh, every two years for one third of the Senate, every four years for the president. Right? Nobody has any choice about that. That's constitutional. In Britain, the election may come at any time, and Churchill regarded that as a wonderful advantage, because when the Parliament gets deadlocked or there's a mess, then you can go ask them again. And so, first of all, Boris Johnson is hogtied, right, because they have prevented a no-deal Brexit. You know, the existing British law said before they did that that Britain could leave, was going to leave on October 31 without condition, and now they can't go unless the European Union says so. And the second thing is they stopped, they, they have prevented him calling an election because of a the, what is it called? The Fixed Term Parliament Act, which is, in my opinion, an abomination. David Cameron did it, a, a, a Tory, uh, because he needs a two-thirds majority of the House to call for an election, and so he's stuck. Right? They have they have tied his hands in an international negotiation, and this ruling about the prorog- prorogation in Scotland that just uh, overturns the whole way the British Constitution works. It does. When we come back, we'll talk about how it would be as though the Supreme Court of Ohio, probably the only one in trouble to do so, enjoined the Congress from taking an action or the executive branch from doing so. It's quite radical, but that's where the remainers are right now. We'll be back talking Brexit with Dr. Larry Arn after this. Stay tuned, America. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt in the ReliefFactor.com studio. With me is Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Uh, you, you might even want to nominate Larry Arn for our Salem 2020 Cultural Warrior of the Year. He can't be an employee of, of Salem Radio. Dennis Prager is very disappointed about that. But over at <laughs> HughHewitt.com, we have the 2020 Cultural Warrior of the Year. It's someone who's out there standing in the gap and standing for everything that you care about and believe is under assault. And I think Dr. Arn or, or actually just Hillsdale College collectively could be nominated for that. You have to go to HughHewitt.com and hit the button. Uh, and you can't give me a Sherman-esque statement, Dr. Arn. It's not up to you. Uh, did Penny get contacted, by the way? Penny Arn, First Lady of Hillsdale, about becoming a peer yet? Is, has Boris Johnson reached out? Uh, you know, she hasn't spoken with the man yet. All right, just, just <laughs> checking. Uh, I sent you, we were talking when we went to break, about the Scottish High Court ruling that the prorogation, which has ancient history behind it, uh, was illegal. I sent you a Christopher Caldwell uh, essay from the Claremont Review of Books. He's a fellow at the Claremont Institute now, where you used to helm the organization. And in it, he made an observation, which I think is profound. Quote, 
The transfer of competences from legislatures to court is a superb thing for the rich because of the way the Constitution interacts with occupational sociology, where the judiciary is drawn from the legal profession and where the legal profession is credentialed by expensive and elite professional schools. Judicialization always means a transfer of power from the country at large to the richest sliver of it. This is true no matter what glorious-sounding pretext is found to justify the shift. Racial harmony, European peace, a fair shake for women. In a global age, judicial review is a tool that powerful people expect to find in a constitution in the same way one might expect to find a hairdryer in a hotel room. Boy, that is sharp. Oh, yeah. And see, just think about the uh, contrast uh, a constitutional lawsuit going to the highest levels with an election. So in an election, everybody gets to have an opinion, and everybody can talk to everybody, anybody, anybody who they can get to listen. And then on polling day, they go to vote. And so you don't need money, and you don't need anything except citizenship. And common sense helps, and people are more influential when they have some of that. Um, so that's an election. Now, what's this thing like? How did they get to the high court of Scotland? I Scotland? don't know. <laughs> a, bunch of, a bunch of powerful people in the know, you know, and they're, they're on the phone with a bunch of QCs, Queen's Councils, and fancy solicitors, both, and, they, uh, and then they call John Major, former prime minister, and they get the great and the near great, and they go file a lawsuit in the Scottish courts and the English courts at the same time. And then they get up there, right, and they generate headlines, and they make a bunch of technical arguments that no one understands except the, some of the lawyers. The priesthood. Involved, right? yeah, and no one priesthood. will ever understand them, right? You know, I just went through a big malarkey about whether it's unconstitutional to prorogue Parliament or not. And the, and the English High Court, the British, the Scotland, the England and Wales High, co- High Court, it decided exactly right, which is prorogation of Parliament has been little but a political tool all along. And then he, they cited a place where it was used in the 17th century, and then they cited a place with the first socialist government in British history, under Clement Adley, used it in 1949, all to get through bills that they favored that they couldn't get through while Parliament was sitting. And so that's what it is, right? That's, that's and, the and thing. Remember, that's it. Not, yeah. It's not a high constitutional danger because it involves soon enough going to the people, right? What, what Boris wants is two things. He wants the Parliament to stop changing its acts constantly so that it hamstrings the negotiations with Europe. And that's what the prorogation is about. And then as soon as he can get it, today is best. If you can't do it yesterday, he wants to ask the people what they want to do. Yep. And that, you know, and the people, it's just terrible, right? Because this complex of things that, that produces these fancy lawsuits, right? That's the same thing that that gets the Speaker of the House to uh, of the House of Commons, one of the most hallowed institutions and leaders of the institution ever, to become a partisan in uh, these things. When we come back, we're going to talk about the descent of Burkow, the Speaker of the House of Commons, into mere political partisanship, a very dangerous thing for the British Constitution if it accelerates and is not rebuked. 
I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College after this. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn in the ReliefFactor.com studio. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. Uh, it is the Lantern of Reason in the north, and there's also a lighthouse of reason in the shadow of the Capitol, the Kirby Center. Dr. Arn goes back and forth between them, and the Hillsdale students are back on campus, so he's spending most of his time in the wilderness, the barren, the the edge of the frontier is Michigan, and uh, that's where he is right now. I, um, I wanted to tell you, Dr. Arn, you're the only, uh, for the second time in my life, I encountered a, a public intellectual who cares about the Northwest Ordinance. You were the first one. And the second one turned out to be Justice Neil Gorsuch, who was at the Nixon Library this week, talking about the glories of the Northwest Ordinance and how they ought to inform our understanding of the framing. Isn't that remarkable? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There used to be the... See, he's a, that guy's a genius. He, uh, he, you and I think he should run for president. Yes. And, and I never think that about judges. But, but he... Uh, he it, we used to formally in the beginning in the in the opening of the United States Code. That's the compilation of all of our laws. They used to print first the four organic laws of the United States, and they are the Declaration of Independence and the Articles of Confederation, and the Northwest Ordinance and the Constitution of the United States. The last two being written in the same year in the same town, and it the Northwest Ordinance provides the first time ever a way for a free government to grow. And, you know, we're also, we understand American history to be so wicked now, but just think of this. We never had a colony. What we did was we had this vast territory, most of it unsurveyed, indeed not even crossed until the middle of the first decade of the 19th century. Nobody knew how big it was, but they set up the law that they would mark the land out in sections, and that when the population got to a certain size, they could elect a territorial government. And when it got to a certain size bigger, that government could present a constitution to the Congress, and the land would be added and the citizens equal to the existing citizens. That, that, this raises two questions. Um, is Michigan surveyed yet? <laughs> okay, yeah, and the second no, question there's, is... There's no need of it because we're so self-governing that we don't need it. The second question is, I think, and I want to know if you concur, that the Senate let a genuine intellectual slip by them and onto the court, a genuine, affectionate lover of the founding documents. And they didn't know what they... He's quoting Madison left and right. It was quite remarkable. Well, I went to see him one time, and I, I, I know I'm a bit... I blurbed his book. That's a, you know, one of the honors we get when we get old. And, uh, <laughs> You're and right. He... he, he, uh, he so I went, to, well, I went to see him, and I opened my big iPad to a page in one of his opinions, and I said, you have written the most eloquent opinion in the 20th century. And he replied, rubbish. And I said, I can prove it to you. And I held up the page in Reince versus U.S., where he diagrams an English sentence in order to find out what a statute means. <laughs> And, and I held it up, and he said, well, okay, that is pretty good. <laughs> that is pretty good. <laughs> See, even modesty has its limits. So I, I have to say, back to our subject of Brexit, um, would Edmund Burke recognize our view of what we're, what we're watching now? Would he have any idea? I mean, they, they, they fought against Napoleon. They fought against the continent. Pitt 
dedicated his entire life to it. Nelson died in defense of it. Wellington finally crushed the continent. And the continent, of course, was embodied in Napoleon. Would they have any idea of what's going on here? Well, it's, it was vivid to them, right? Because what the British Constitution is, is limits on the power of all the powerful, beginning with the king. And what they were fighting against was a form of monarchy that was near absolute. And so that was the clearest thing in the world to them. We disperse power in order to protect the rights of all of our subjects. And so that's, you know, they're, you know Churchill, the great, you know, Churchill's paraphrase of Aristotle, which is there are two kinds of countries, the ones where the government owns the people and the one where the people own the government. And, and, you know, we, our case here that you and I have been making for weeks now about Brexit is it's just like American politics, right? There is a struggle between a, a class of highly influential people, and they cross national boundaries, and they believe in a new kind of regime or governing that involves expertise at the top making crucial decisions with recurrences to the people from time to time under highly controlled conditions, right? And so, so that, that's what the struggle is about over there, and that, I, in my opinion, is what the struggle is about over here. And I think you're right. And Gorsuch yeah. understands the struggle. He's for the rule of law grounded in the law made by the people of the United States, the Constitution of the United States. That is exactly right. Now, all of this is coming down, though, to Northern Ireland and to the Republic of Ireland. And there is nothing more freighted than a discussion of Ireland with Englishmen. Uh, so we, we tread very carefully here, despite the approval of Andrew Roberts, who, by the way, has written a terrific biography of Napoleon that I would recommend to everyone. Let's, let's get from you, uh, and, and, and having served so closely in, in, in writing about Churchill for so many years, you're very well. He was Ireland secretary for a while, I believe. Um, what is the Northern Ireland, uh, to explain it for a Steelers fan, what is this Northern Ireland thing and why does it matter so much? Well, uh, the affection of Northern Ireland for England and Britain is, uh, is a, a product in significant part of the hatred of England in the South. And that hatred is well won because the British were tough on the Irish for a long time. Maybe the worst of all was Cromwell, and, you know, that's in the 16th century, uh, 17th century. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, that's, that's, uh, so it goes back a long way, and the, the settlement, the, the basic structure of the settlement that prevails uh, was negotiated by Winston Churchill, and, and uh, you know, his father, by the way, having prevented that from happening back when he broke the Gladstone government, with Neville Chamberlain's father, Joe Chamberlain, British politics is like Arkansas. <laughs> Everybody's related. But, uh, but, uh, and, and so that settlement divided Ireland into the Catholic South and the Protestant North, and the Protestant North is very attached to Britain, although also very attached to the South. They're all Irish. And, you know, the troubles which is the modern form of the of the wars in Ireland, the sectarian wars, which really were, by the way, Marxist, Leninist versus ordinary yep. in the last, late stages. Uh, that that was a fight located especially in the city of Belfast, the capital of Northern Ireland, 
but you know, with, with people, you know, kids had to be guarded by people with machine guns to get to school, and that was all put to bed. Now Tony Blair did very, you know, and I don't like Tony Blair, but I like some things about him. He did good work in helping to settle that and stop all that violence, and uh, and and uh, so now. What should happen, except that in the case of Britain leaving the European Union, Ireland is certainly going to stay. But Northern Ireland is certainly going to leave. In fact, the coalition partner of the Conservative Party since the election two years ago uh, is the Northern Ireland Party that is very faithful to the Conservative Party. And so, and they want to remain close to Britain. And they don't want a hard wall built up again between north and south, and they don't want all that trouble. So, of course, the European Union has uh, exploited the fact that a border has to be created of some kind between northern and southern Ireland. And, you know, like everything in politics, there's going to be contradictions and problems. The question is, in what spirit do you go about trying to solve them? And... And, and the European Union is demanding a hard border uh, because, you know, they, why would they want that? The answer is, first, just to make trouble. But second, they've got all kinds of rules that make them a closed society. You know, this thing that started in an effort for free trade is actually significantly protectionist against Very. the whole world outside it, right? Very, yeah. well, much more than the United States has ever been. And by the way, it's worth saying... China is much more protectionist than the United States has ever been. And, and uh, so, so they want a hard border, right? And that, would, that messes up Ireland. And so darned if Theresa May didn't agree to that in part in the, the deal she negotiated and could never get through Parliament. And so, she's, so the point is they're playing with that. And then, you know, the... the the Irish party that supports the conservatives has, the, you said it earlier, has this week signaled flexibility. In other words, they would make some kind of a deal that might stiffen the border some, which they don't want, in order to get the deal done. Or that's move the border that's... to the Irish Sea. I believe that's one of the implications, is that they would, they would accept that, even though it, it has a uh, long-term consequence of perhaps... Uh, loosening the ties that bind. I've got to talk to you about the speaker. John, uh, John Burkow went on a rampage this week. You're a master of disorder, man. Quite frankly, young man, you can like it or lump it. Get out, man. You will not be missed. I require no response from you. I'm not remotely interested in your pettifogging objection chanted inelegantly from a sedentary position. You wouldn't have the foggiest idea where to start in seeking to counsel me on this important... I couldn't give a flying flamingo what your view is. This reminds me of how you treat me, Dr. Arndt. <laughs> flying, I'm, I'm going to use that. Flying flamingo. I like that. <laughs> it, uh... Yeah, so uh, know what the speaker is, right? The speaker is an ancient institution and, and always chosen, by the way, from a member of parliament who keeps his seat. And that means he's been a partisan one day and the next day he's not. And he is the keeper of the rules and the order of the House. And, you know, one of the fundamental rules is the House has a right to debate. When it's sitting, it has a right to debate. 
and people have to get hurt. I can show you a dozen, a thousand places in speeches of Churchill when he's prime minister where he says there's a feeling in this, in this house that we need to argue about this, and so we will. And the speaker is the neutral person who keeps order. And you wanted to tell me the story about my niece. I have a, my, my wife's sister has our first, our eldest niece. And, you know, she's a grown woman now with children, a beautiful woman. She was a beautiful baby. And the first thing she learned to say, because she would listen to the BBC radio news while she was eating her breakfast before her mother took her to school, and Auntie Jane would say, Fiona, what does the speaker say? And Fiona would say, order, order. <laughs> you know, and, and that then, is you know, good. What, that is and then, fine child word, raising. What does the pig say? Oink, oink. You know. So it's, it's, the point is kids learn that voice, and, and, they, and they know it, and it's respected and not partisan. And when right? we come back, now it is. we're going to talk about the danger of descending into partisanship from the chair. When we come back with Dr. Larry Arnn, president of Hillsdale College. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. With Dr. Larry Arnn, president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. Next week, we begin Homer with a translation by... Um, Sachs. Sachs. Or, so, Joe, I found Joe Sachs, Hugh, writing that he never read a translation of Homer he didn't like. And so... It doesn't matter, although Sachs is very good and his introduction to his translation is very good. And that's where we're beginning next week. But before we go there, a few more words on the speaker and why it matters that he is, John Burkow is leaving. He's announced he's leaving. He's leaving in such a way to allow Labor to elect the speaker. And that person will no doubt be a radical because Labor has become radical. What is the problem with this, Dr. Arndt? Well, the problem is what you just said. Uh, it's, you're not supposed to fear that the speaker will be radical, whichever party he comes from. Because, this, you know, one of the things that's going on in the world is this administrative centralized state is lawless. Because if you make too many laws, nobody can know what they are. And then only experts can interpret and enforce them. Well, the respect for the law what, what, what it takes you. One of Churchill's favorite words was obedience. He was obedient. He bowed to the House. He bowed to the Constitution. He did his part. And yeah, people miss that about him, but it's, it's very consistent, right? And he was, of course, incredibly pushy at the same time. Well, speakers don't get to be pushy except to keep order in the House. And impartially. It's very important because if you're sitting in the speaker's chair, you're looking down an all, a long aisle to the exit from the House of Commons. And on your left is the opposition, and on your right is the government, and they're hammering each other. And what you do is permit that to go on in a civil way and expeditiously. And instead, he just denounces people. It, you know, you can... You, the 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 Hansard is the record of the parliamentary debates, and unlike the congressional record, it's always attempted to be a verbatim transcript of what is said. Charles Dickens used to take notes for it. And so you can read the speaker's interventions down through time, and they're always brief, and they're always decisive. And you just played a bunch of tapes of that guy railing and yes. denouncing people from an unassailable position but, of course, the effect of it's going to be it's going to demote the dignity of the speaker. It's not going to make it stronger. It's going to make it weaker. 
And, and it's going to make Parliament much more the rule of one. He made rulings in the course of this Brexit debate, which are hitherto unknown, by allowing the minority to take control of the agenda. Uh, and that and allowing the commons to take and taking it away from the executive. Just a couple of words on why that is such a bad change in the British Constitution. Well, because every constitution that works is a delicate balance. And every constitution that doesn't now I think of it is an indelicate balance. And and uh, and so the the delicacy is in this. The House of Commons is led by the government. The majority party puts the government in place. But then it must operate as an independent check on the government to permit debate. And, and, then, and then, so the balance is this. It's the balance between the ability of the parliament to debate and the, and the ability and necessity of the executive branch to act. And, and so what's going on here, and it's, just, it's just notorious. It's just a scandal. The British government is incompetent to address the European Union, which is very united in all this because it's a top-down bureaucracy. And so that, you know, and it's, it, the, by the way, the European government is disunited about everything except something that comes up that affects its, the, the prerogatives of the people at the top. And it will be the irony of ironies, last question to you, if Northern Ireland delivers the United Kingdom the keys with which to break away from Europe. And won't that be great? And see, I admit that Britain has not behaved itself properly in Ireland on many occasions. But, of course, on many, many occasions it has behaved masterfully, beautifully. And so they, the Northern Ireland looked to them as a source of stability and safety. And so good for them. Good for them. And I read from the Times that the Democratic Unionist Party has agreed to shift its red lines to help unlock a deal. The DUP has said for the first time it would accept Northern Ireland abiding by some European rules after Brexit in a deal to replace the Irish break, uh, uh, backstop. Now, I've told your colleague up there, we're not going to come back to Brexit until it resolves, which is at the end of October. You think I'm optimistic? Mm, maybe. Uh, I think that, uh, yeah, I don't think it will resolve on October 31. I think it'll be November, December. I don't think it'll go into the new year. Uh, and also, the reader, the listener should know that uh, we've gone in out of order. Before we can get to the Iliad, we have to go through the Odyssey of Brexit. <laughs> oh, bad <laughs> pun to end the day. But that's not uh, really, you know, I, I, I just got to say for that. Get out, man! You will not be missed. <laughs> Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, always a pleasure. Thank you. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be back on Monday. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Generalissimo. Thanks, all of you, for listening to this, the You Do It Show. Play the radio. Make sure the television, excuse me, make sure you have the record player on at night. The, the, the phone.